hopefully the realization that the system has to be built as one will will dawn on people and so we stop paying lip service to the idea of universal health coverage which is built on essentially a, a colonial apartheid system i'm dr richard aya of the university of nairobi i have two roles one is as a senior lecturer in the school of public health and my area is health systems management and health policy and i also am the director science and technology park which is a unit of the university that promotes innovation so dr aya i mean right now as we speak kenya has just about just over 300 uh, cases of COVID-19. The government is announcing the samples that have been tested, but that's not essentially the number of positive cases in Kenya. No, that's that's not. And I mean, I would caution, there are many, there are many projections out there that people have. And, you know, people try to do country comparisons. And that's really, it's difficult to do so. So let, let me start by saying that, first of all, you're, you're looking at, at um, individual cases. And individual cases, if you're looking at population health, you always have to think about the sampling. What does it mean? Does this individual represent the population that, it, that the individual has come from? So it's difficult to extrapolate because the models that we have so far are really based on people's experiences in the rest of the world. So like we were discussing just before, in the UK and in many Western countries, a lot of old people are put in nursing homes. So they're a vulnerable group and they're found in one particular place in an institution. So it's, it's relatively easy for the virus to, to spread because these are people who are elderly and are likely to have problems with their immune system. In Kenya, we don't really have that kind of institutional approach to how we we look after our elderly. So you can't extrapolate numbers based on a different health system. That's sort of in summary. That's one. Two, population health and clinical measurements are different. So a lot of people are taking, these are essentially a clinical counts. You know, you saw one case today, two cases tomorrow or whatever. Those are cases. They're not population health. So what you'd want to hear in order to be able to build a model that would tell you the numbers would be something that would say, we've tested 10,000 people and this thing is more common in people with this kind of a background or in this kind of geographical area and this, you know, some characteristic where you can take a group and then you'd look for that group in the wider population. Has has the, has that been part of the briefing? I mean, has it has it been part or has it been contextualized to the point where you know the vulnerability uh, and the spread and the people are at risk? You know, the, the, has the minister said that? Like, for example, the Kenyan minister. Not so far. The, there's been one characterization, and that was travelers, people coming from abroad. So that was done. I think about two weeks after the the first case was announced then so for 48 hours people were, were were sort of sent into quarantine and then flights were stopped so that group it's it's known so a lot of these cases that we're talking about came from that group and since flights stopped so that's now a pool that is is diminishing in terms of value in, in so far as projected to the rest of the country. We do know there's local transmission and local transmission started almost immediately because 
the, the quarantine and the self-isolation was not done well. So really that is the only group that you'd characterize and say were identified as a, as a high risk and flights were stopped. So it's no longer valid per se. So, I mean, we've, you've talked about projections as well. I mean, so as a, an average person trying to understand all these scientific phrases, uh, you know, flattening the curve, social distancing and everything else. Um, I mean, I'm obviously, they, we have the media, uh, which is uh, breaking down this uh, information uh, from the government to the public. I mean, from what you've seen uh, of, for, for example, the media in Africa, how have they done and how do you think they should best report this story so that the people can actually understand what's happening? I mean, the numbers are, are, are important in one way, in, in terms of it's, it's a piece of information. Now, people, people need to try and contextualize both, like how big is COVID in relation to, to daily life. So I think that's one of the things that is missing in terms of media. Obviously, people don't want to underplay the effects of COVID, but at the same time, Africa has a very high disease burden. So in terms of magnitude, I'm sure where you are, say in the UK and so on, a lot of families have all their grandparents are alive. The, the death is a fairly rare event. Whereas in a lot of African countries, death is a fairly common event. I mean, you don't go more than a year without somebody who you know, a friend's relative or you know, somebody fairly close to you dies. So that context, I think, is missing. And people who live through it understand that, yes, something new has come, but they'd like to place it somewhere. Is, is COVID more important than malaria or less? Now, the challenge for everybody is that already there's been such massive underinvestment in public health that it's sad when you have to compare between bad and worse. But people still have to make that kind of a, a judgment call. So the kind of information they need is that kind of background of how, what, is, what is our health system capable of? And what exactly is this lockdown or these curfews or this, what are, what are we trying to, to prevent? Because clearly the disease is not going away. So going back to the question you asked about uh, flattening the curve, you know, we don't have a curve because we're not, not testing. So there's no curve to flatten. You're talking about testing there, but then there's also the capacity. In Kenya, for example, the government and in many African countries, they just don't have the kits to actually do the testing that, uh, that is required. So at the moment, I mean, obviously the government gives uh, like daily figures, for example, in Kenya, uh, to say we've test, tested X number of people and uh, this is, these are the returns. You know, maybe you could just let us in in terms of who is being tested. So, so yeah, so the first group that was tested, like I said, were travelers. And then contact tracing was being done. So people were being quarantined and they were being tested. Then the, the case definition, which is the, the definition used to decide that this is COVID or not COVID was quite narrow. And it included that you must have traveled or you must have been in, in, in uh, close contact with somebody who, was, who had tested positive for COVID. So that was the criteria for testing initially. Then after that, the, it was expanded a little bit. So at the moment now they're testing health workers as well, uh, voluntary, and then the Kenya Ports Authority as well, they, they had an outbreak there. Two patients, unfortunately, passed away. Some number of people have been infected through the seaport of Mombasa. So we've had 
then this contact tracing, this surveillance from people who came in um, initially, it was thought a history of travel, but now it's more of contact tracing. So those are the people who are, who are being tested. I mean, a few weeks ago, the Kenyan government had a dire projection, especially for the month of, uh, of April. That has not come to pass. It's just basically, the question is, is just in, in terms of how is an ordinary person supposed to understand and kind of like interpret these projections that don't actually come to pass? Does it mean that the modeling uh, wrong or uh, the premise of the modeling wrong or what actually happened there? Again, this is about, you know, the communication in terms of how many... For the professional, what you'd want, you'd want several models in terms of a, a range, yeah? to say it could be this, between this and this. But the way it was communicated, it was like almost a definite thing, like, you know, this number, it'll be 5,000 by this time. And then, as you said, when it comes to pass, people relax and say, ah, maybe this thing is not that, that serious. Huh? But it's useful for planning purposes, because remember, the, the goal in public health is that public health succeeds when nobody dies. So the measure of success for public health is nothing happened. So you might count that as a success to say, yeah, we, we thought it would be 5,000, but we took measure A, B, C, and look, it's 300. So that might be something that we can analyze later and say, if we hadn't done the lockdown, the curfew, and so on, it could have been 5,000, right? But the other point is that we're not testing. So we can't get, we've barely tested, I think it's about 13,000, 14,000 at the moment. So if we had tested 14,000 and we got 5,000 positives, then to me, people would be dying here like mad. So we're not testing sufficient to, to recognize the 5,000 anyway. This is just street talk. Uh, people are basically saying, okay, so here's the situation. The health systems in most African countries, uh, like Kenya, are not that robust. The capacity of doing the testing is, as well, not sufficient. And therefore, they're saying that if the COVID-19 situation in Kenya, for example, is that, then we'll probably be seeing uh, hospitals around the country flooded with people who are succumbing to, to the disease or even just, you know, going into these hospitals. So we are not seeing that. But... Is that kind of a, um, is that an ag- accurate way of looking at these things? No, I mean, for, okay, so, so people for drama insofar as, you know, sort of patients dying and what have you. I think the, the situation is, is, um, is likely to be a little bit different and in a sense more serious. In this sense, we, we, that there's lots and lots of from 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 studies elsewhere covid is is extremely infective so already we have a fairly high mortality rate from other diseases so you add one or two per day in health facilities spreading all over the place and that will paralyze our health system it paralyzes in two ways one we don't have sufficient uh, personal protective equipment, which means that health workers are going to be infected. If they detect that they've, that they've been exposed in some way, they go off for quarantine for 14 days. Given our relative health shortage, it doesn't take one or two of those patients in any two-week period for that health facility to have to shut down. 
which means that then that facility cannot do deliveries. It cannot take care of people with other conditions, road traffic accidents and whatever. So that mortality will then start to go up. So that to me is the weakness that we have. And this is now the, the tragedy when you're not testing because then we don't know what the risk is. It's totally unaware, literally waiting for somebody to walk through the door. And we've had a couple of um, examples of, of that. There's a, there's a group I, of, of my students and we have an evening call every day and some of them are working. And some of my ex-students as well who are posted into counties out. And so they report stories. So I'll give you one example. One patient was turned away from the main referral hospital, Kenyatta Hospital, over the weekend, who had a um, an injury and required ICU support, and they didn't have a sufficient history. Basically, they were just fearing that you know maybe this is COVID and we're not ready. So the patient um, could not be admitted into the ICU. So that's to me is the kind of example where now that somebody like that passes away simply because people don't feel prepared to to take on the patient. You know, I just kind of want to look at the uh, the measures that have been taken to kind of uh, control the spread of COVID-19. Um, there has been a lot of talk about whether lockdowns or curfews are actually the right way. You know, just in, in, in that context, I don't, I mean, obviously not right now we have a good few weeks of different Af- African countries using different measures. I just wonder where, whether uh, you have some insight into what you think is pro- probably appropriate for this moment, considering the, obviously, the economic and the social consequences of uh, uh, both measures. I, I sympathize with um, senior policymakers, the minister, and so on, in terms of what are they to do, because it's really tough. I mean, we're a, a low-trust society, so it's very difficult to get... Kenyans to to act together. So the 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 government traditionally has this top down approach. Now public health is not quite amenable to that, except in very sort of small societies which are very tightly cohesive. Can people see the public good? Now we have a, a society where corruption levels are high, and people just do not trust that the government is is looking out for them. So it's been a really tough one to get people to, to do what they have to do. And the second thing around that, apart from the low social trust, is for people to understand exactly what this thing is. And by that I mean, we compare that with, with HIV, and there's some parallels of the early days of HIV, when there was a lot of phobia and stigma around HIV, don't touch, don't do this, don't do that until people eventually figured out exactly how transmission occurred. But HIV today is essentially a sexually transmitted disease. So there's an event that occurs that you can trace when the infection occurred. Now here, the communication has not been very clear exactly when does the infection occur. And I think that has, so when the lockdown was announced, people, yes, have stopped a lot restaurants and things are closed down. People have stopped uh, coming to work or they go in and they leave early. But those people who believe that they, they have a daily, not believe, but they have a daily life that they must do, um, 
informal business and so on, sort of carry on as normal. So they've got their masks, but they behave as usual. And I think one of the things is they don't have an understanding of exactly what is the event we're looking out for. So is this a, uh, a situation where, you know, public education and kind of like the information that was meant to be passed out to people about exactly, you know, the basics of what this thing is, what you need to do to protect yourself. So are you suggesting that that has not been sufficient? No, it's not been. And it is something where, okay, number one, government made efforts to control the information, to sort of stop rumors, so that we have one figure and it's announced by the minister and sometimes the president. So that you don't have rumors going around saying, oh, you know, it's 5,000 or 1,000, whatever it is. So that's been important. But in doing that, then a lot of people have been silenced. And for this to work, in my opinion, you need a lot of experts passing the message out about exactly what this, the disease is and, and how do you pass it along and then the translations into various cultures. So that hasn't happened. I think people are beginning to wake up to it now that this is something that needs to happen. But the initial bit of having a, a, a broad network of people talking about it. So if you look at the various constituencies, the churches, for example, have been conspicuously silent. You know, they, they was like, oh, we want to continue running out. Then after that, they've just kept quiet. The um, politicians, of course, all kept quiet, which I think is a good thing. But you can look at various sort of groups who traditionally would, would speak out and try and get society to move in a certain direction, but they have been quiet. Do you think there should have been at least a lot more done? Uh, I mean, was there something? I mean, obviously, the, the state of the healthcare system, as we've discussed, is not that robust. But was there uh, something that African countries could have done to just better prepare and uh, respond to, uh, to COVID-19? Or as what they've done so far, been pretty much the best that uh, they could do? With hindsight, I would say, one, there, there are some countries who have experienced something similar to what we're experiencing. And those are countries like Liberia, DRC, um, countries that experienced Ebola. So they know what it takes to, to get people to self-isolate and so on. And I'm now just sort of thinking out and saying, those to me would have been the people we should have approached straight away on hearing some of these stories and saying, by the way, guys, what, what did you do? Because I think their lessons are more applicable than we tend to turn our ear to. And so all our stories are about Italy, uh, England, the US. You know, it's like you're, you're continuing to watch a soap. Huh? Whereas the reality is that we have more in common with Liberia or Ghana um, than, than with those countries, insofar as weak health systems, uh, African culture, and dealing with, with a very effective disease with very little infrastructure. So my guess would be that there are people, they may not be your, your professor, your what, they may be just regular health workers in those countries who know what to do you know, local administrators and so who know what to do? How do you sort out an, an area within Nairobi or whatever? You want to do a lockdown. You want to convince people to stay home. 
what do you do? They probably have that experience, but I'm not too sure, and this is out of sheer ignorance, that we have looked to, to look for that kind of expertise. Okay, now you talked about, uh, you know, scientists obviously being involved in this intervention, but could uh, experts in social sciences, I mean, what, could they be probably the best people to engage, especially in, in this situation? Yes, I totally agree. I mean, social scientists, I mean, it's really important. I mean, part of the success of HIV management has been when social scientists started to be involved because they began to unravel you know, the behavior of people and really get to the root of why, why is it that something that perhaps to a clinician or to a science-based person looks so obvious that you should look after your life. So that's kind of missing. The second thing is that, back to the issue of the low trust, the, the, the way in which quarantine centers are being uh, put is like a punishment, which is not public health at all. So essentially, the security apparatus, the police and all that have, have, have taken on the quarantine centers as if they're an extension of jail. So you listen to the pronouncement and it's like, if you do A, B, C, D, we shall put you in quarantine for 14 days and then you'll see. So it's a punishment, not something which is meant to promote health. So that kind of thing has to change. So the, the facilities themselves, because they're, they're looked at as some kind of a jail, are not optimum. Really, a quarantine uh, facility should be almost no different from me being in a hospital or me being in my own home. The, the standard of, of life should not be a total downgrade. Yet, for a lot of it, it is. So we had an incident where we were, we were uh, buying stuff for people in quarantine. They're not poor, but just because they didn't have it. How do you see this crisis? And I, let's hope that uh, uh, it will pass soon. And, uh, you know, how, how do you see this changing, uh, you know, like kind of healthcare systems on the continent? Is there something good that you see that will come out of it? I think the something good will come, but it'll take a while because I think that government is, is fairly set in its ways in the sense that budgets had been prepared and there was an agenda and so on. And then this thing came along. And I think the initial thing had been that this is something passing. You know, China had it for one, two months and then it passed. And then we'll sort of deal with it as an emergency and it'll go away. I think it's slowly dawning on people that a change needs to be made. And to me, there are two directions. One is, and this is to me the, the one that would be best, the realization that we cannot continue with a society that is so unequal, where essentially what we have is, is a health infrastructure, which is built on a colonial legacy. So you have your private sector, very well-funded, uh, fairly good healthcare, and then you have your public service always sort of suffering. So hopefully the realization that the system has to be built as one will, will dawn on people. And so we stop paying lip service to the idea of universal health coverage, which is built on essentially a, a colonial apartheid system. The other one is one where instead of investing in, in public health, we invest in anything but public health. So we try to ride out the, the COVID-19 
So that that to me would be a tragedy. I just wonder whether there's just one thing that keeps you awake at night that you really worry about and are concerned about in this crisis. What what, what is that? Well, I hope you're having a good sleep, but I wonder whether there's just one thing that can't can't leave you mind. <laughs> I tend to sleep well at night, so I don't know. I'll tell you one thing that is is fairly positive, and that is I'm, I'm involved in innovation, and I've been talking to, and we have two large groups of very sort of young engineers and um, med students as well, who have come out and are innovating devices and so on. So today, for example, we, we were lodging some face shields in with the Kenya Bureau of Standards for approval. And these are this is in our in our um, innovation lab, and these are guys who just looked, said they made, we supported them, and the stuff is ready, and we're going to start producing. So, and there's been a lot of that kind of an effort, and because one of the outcomes of all this is the realization that we cannot rely on uh, donor donors filling in a gap because they have the same problem. So we have to think about how we we manage for our own. That I think is is one of the positive things that will come out. So if you're talking about what will keep me at, at night is if this sort of spark gets crushed by people deciding that this is the opportunity to do a quick profit, perhaps sell fake um, kits of one kind or the other, the usual kind of scandal that comes up after a while huh? because people are quite unscrupulous. That for me would be the, the thing that would really make me sad. You've talked about the innovation of face shields there. And, you know, I've seen also some innovation coming out of Kenyatta University. You know, they're, they've developed uh, ventilators. But then how do you get this innovation to be uh, approved and also mass produced so that it uh, be taken to, on the front line where it's desperately needed? Two and a half years ago, we were the first to, to design and prototype a medical device and get it both approved industrially through Kenya Bureau of Standards and also clinically tested. And we believe we're the first in sub-Saharan Africa to do that out of a local medical device. So I can tell you that one of the things we had to do was to build capacity within the Kenya Bureau of Standards in terms of the, the, um, how to approve a medical device. And one of the culture changes was just the disbelief that we were not from China. So it even took a while for them to believe that we were not just some people who are uh, have a thing that we have somehow brought into the country and we're trying to get approved through a back door. So there has to be that culture shift. There's, there's limited capacity in terms of regulatory approval, and this is across Africa. I've attended um, a regulator conference, and we did present on that, where the, in America you have the FDA, in Europe you have your standards as well. In Africa, there are only one or two countries that have the regulatory authority that is able to... to even just the laws, huh, to be able to, to look through this. So for these guys, the hurdles they have, the, it's almost like this is the easier part, even though this is really the harder part for them. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of government support to help them to go through all the steps to the point where they have something that is approved. I, I know your interest is obviously... Uh, in Kenya, and you're uh, blogging about this. So, if people want to check out what you uh, your blo- you've been blogging about, so where do they go? We we call it Health Systems: A Kenyan Perspective, and there, what we're trying to do is that we're we're looking to curate all the information that comes out of WHO, the Ministry of Health, 
all the papers that are being published, and then we contextualize them to our health system in terms of providing advice for health workers and also the public, just to get an idea of exactly what is is um, COVID-19 and how should we, we react to it. So it's, it's um, the blog is Health Systems, a Kenyan perspective. That is Dr. Richard Daya from Nairobi University in Kenya. You can now download my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, if you have an Android phone, and it's also on Spotify and SoundCloud. Just search for my name, Dickens Olewe. And of course, leave a rating when you find it. If you have any questions or comments, I'm always on Twitter. My handle is at Dickens Olewe. And as always, thank you so much for listening and for your comments. And until next time, bye-bye.